A beautiful bouquet of flowers. It can say more than words ever could. To celebrate, congratulate, or just let someone know you're thinking of them. At flowers.ie, we know every bouquet is special. So every order we receive is hand-picked, arranged with care, and delivered with love across Ireland. We even send a video before it's delivered, so you know it's just right. Say it with flowers at www.flowers.ie. Rated five stars on Trustpilot. Now on Documentary on News Talk, a new radio feature, Letters from Midwinter, provides a rare insight into the private conversations of women in Ireland between 1970 and 2020 through their personal letters. It's a cold night, midwinter. I'm at the 40 foot, a well-known swimming spot on the southern tip of Dublin Bay. A full moon illuminates the inky black Irish sea as it swells and subsides against the rocks. A group of women have come to swim. They're huddled in the changing area, lit up here and there by head torches, as they put on their swimming togs and brace themselves against the cold. Oh, this is madness. Why am I here? When I was born in 1970, women were not permitted to swim here. Then, in 74, a group of determined women staged a protest, invaded the 40-foot and dived defiantly into the sea. The women make their way down the rough steps and the ladder into the cold water. The women swimming here tonight are my generation. Born in the late 60s and early 70s, we bridge the gap between our mothers, who had few choices in life, and our daughters, who have, on the surface at least, much greater freedoms. (laughs) After their swim, the women, shivering but invigorated, gather beneath the spot where the gentleman-only sign was removed from the wall. To Moonlight Swimming and Women, Women Swimming. The Ireland we grew up in was a harsh place for women. But we survived the cold. The swimmers head for home, fortified by the swim and the company. As their voices fade, the 40-foot becomes quiet again. I think about the innumerable conversations that have taken place between women in the 50 years of my lifetime. Conversations that take place when we're together, like tonight. But also, conversations that take place in letters, when we are apart, divided by distance or circumstance. I wish I could hear more of the voices of the women whose lives have overlapped with mine. What they had to say at important moments in their lives. So I put an ad in the newspaper, looking for letters. The first letter to arrive was written just months after the protest at the 40-foot in 74. In that year, -year 21-year-old Sue and her new husband emigrated to Australia as assisted passage migrants for a fare of just £10 each. They got married as soon as they started planning their trip, partly because her father wouldn't let her live with a boyfriend. But also, as a civil servant, Sue would only qualify for the assisted passage scheme if she was a wife. This letter was written to Sue by her mother, Madeline, 
It would have been written at the large table in the kitchen of the family home in North Dublin, where the fire was always lit and the window looked out on the garden. Dublin 9, October 1974. My dear Susan, I can't tell you how delighted I was to get your letter this morning. I was on my way out to 9.30 Mass when I saw the postman at Cocklands. I could see the green envelope in his hands and I knew it was from you. It's only 12 o'clock and I've read it three times. The phone never rings these days and I miss you a lot. But so long as you are happy, that's all I want. I'll be looking forward to getting some snaps especially of your accommodation, so that I can visualise you and Fergus in it. To think that you are asleep as I'm writing this. I think of you so often during the day, wonder what you're doing. I know that you will be very busy, but do try and write often. It would mean so much to me. I had a drink of your martini last night with 7-Up. It wasn't too bad. Your poor sister Liz had to sleep with me the night you left. She was crying her eyes out until 12 o'clock. Dad slept in her room. I couldn't send her to school the next day. She calls the little dog she bought Ozzy and he goes to bed with her every night. Believe it or not, we have a loan of a colour TV. It belongs to Peter Kearns. We may have it for a month. It'll be awful going back to black and white after it. But we're enjoying it while we can. I heard the colour ones are costly to run. Hopefully not. At this stage the coal is paid for, but the electric bill has yet to come. I hope you enjoy your wedding anniversary and that all your cards arrive on time. I'll never forget my first wedding anniversary, your christening day. I wouldn't have changed places with the Queen. And I still have my Marcus's necklace, which Dad gave me. What a lot has happened in this last year. Love and kisses to you both. God bless. Mammy. While Sue was living in Australia, I was enjoying my early childhood in suburban Cork. As I watched Shirley Temple films and played house with my Cindy dolls, I had little sense of the dangers that lay for women who tried to live outside the narrow norms set by the church and the state. But of course the reality was, in 1970s Ireland that sex outside of marriage was a sin. Contraception was illegal and illegitimacy cast a long shadow over the mother, child and extended family. For single women who became pregnant, the system demanded that you give your child up for adoption. For the few brave souls who refused, it was hard to find a safe place to live or anyone willing to help or even listen. Clonmel, County Tipperary, 8th November 1977. Dear Nuala, I am wondering if you could help me. I am unmarried with a baby boy of 17 months. My problem is a house for myself and the child. I have renewed my name on the council list for the second year and I have gone to the council nearly every day without luck. I am staying in a house at the moment, a house that no young girl should stay in with a young baby. But the way I see it, it's a roof over our heads. The house is well known for men and young girls. You could make out the rest. The priest tried a while back to get it closed up without success. I lived here when I was pregnant and so far since the baby was born, I haven't had much trouble. 
I have a room of my own where I stay and mind my own business. Now the owner of the house would rather I get out, as he knows I am not one of his young women to amuse his pub mates. When he brings them in, myself and the baby lock ourselves into the room just in case anything would happen. So far, no harm has come to me, thank God. I am afraid of when Christmas comes around, because the owner drinks a lot. I do hope you could advise me on what to do. I have tried everything that would get me out of this house, but I don't seem to have any luck. This house is making me very depressed, and sometimes I wake up wishing I was dead. But when I look at my child, I know I must try to stick it out. I do hope you will answer my letter as I will be looking forward to your advice. Hope to hear from you soon. Yours sincerely, Rose James. That letter was addressed to a support worker with the organisation Cherish, today known as One Family. Cherish had been founded in 1972 when a Dublin woman, who found herself pregnant and unmarried, placed an ad in the paper in the hope of getting in touch with other unmarried mothers. In the years that followed, a small group of women came together to campaign against societal stigmas and to provide support. In this second letter from the Cherish Archive, a very young single mother from County Meath considers her support worker a friend at a time when she doesn't have many. Athboy, County Meath, 20th of March 1976. Dear Eleanor, many thanks for your nice letter received today. It's nice to get in touch with you once again. I named the baby Sarah. She's getting very big and she's getting very fat. She's getting one tooth now. I'm very glad I was able to keep her. I get some very dirty looks around when I take her out in the pram, but looks don't bother me. I'm not mad at her. In fact, I'm very proud of her. Mam and Dad just adore her. For the month I was in Dublin, they looked after and took excellent care of her. Mam is keeping well now. Dad's not giving up on the old way. He never says anything to me now, no matter what I say or do. Sometimes I lose my temper and fly off the handle. But everyone does, don't they? It does you good to let off a bit of steam now and then. Until I hear from you again, goodbye. From your friend, Suze McLaughlin. Anyone who grew up in Ireland in the 20th century understands the role of the church in the lives of the community. Many families had a daughter or a son who had given their life to the service of the church. And although this often meant accepting living far from home, it was a source of great pride and status. Rose Ryan was born in 1899 in County Roscommon. When she was just 14 years old, her older sister Hannah left home for America, where she lived most of her life as a nun with the Seneca sisters of Chicago. The two sisters never saw each other again. 63 years after they said goodbye, Rose is visiting Annie, one of her daughters who lives in Colester, when she receives the news of Hannah's death. She immediately writes to her other daughter, Molly. Collins Avenue East, Dublin 9, November 1976. My dear daughter, I sincerely hope you're well and not working too hard. 
When Annie came in to tell me this morning that my dear sister Hannah had passed away, may she rest in peace. I felt bad, although not entirely unprepared. She was one of the dearest you would wish to know. She was so sincere and kind. She left home on the 17th of March, 63 years ago. I loved her in my heart and when she went, I grieved for years. And never a day has passed since then that she wasn't in my thoughts. I had a short letter from her, not very long back, perhaps three weeks ago. She mentioned a fall she'd had on a concrete surface that had hurt her back. Of course, when an aged person falls and fractures bone, it's generally very injurious and in some cases fatal. It's happy for her and for us that she will intercede for. Of late, she looked forward to dying with hope. I see her in my mind's eye, just as I did when she walked out the door of the home place for the last time. I felt broken-hearted and used to dream every night that she was back. When I would awaken, I would have given the world if it was only true. It was great seeing you Monday night at the Sailor Walk. You look really well. I enjoyed being at the sale, and I presume it went off very well. Annie and I went out yesterday to Donnybrook Hospital to see my second cousin Kathleen. I'm so pleased we did. She looked pretty well, but had that depressed gloom of no interest. I asked, did she know me? And she said, Rose, and smiled a welcome and said, wasn't I wonderful to come? She said, when I look out the window, I think if I could only see home and the village when we were all together. I felt sorry for her being so lonely. So I said, maybe some future day she'd be able to go down home to Moor North again. Love from Mother. P.S. Write me next week. By 1979, the reach of the Catholic Church in Ireland was breathtaking. The Pope's visit in that year reinvigorated the ambition of the Catholic right to make Ireland a beacon of pro-life values. And as the 80s began, women here still had little autonomy over their bodies. I began my teenage years in a society where sex was very much taboo. Our emerging awareness of our sexuality seemed only to widen the gulf between us and the older generations. Anne, a young Dublin girl, visiting elderly relatives down the country, writes to her best friend June on the day of her 16th birthday. County Tipperary, 28th July 1982. Hi June. Well, I am now able to have sex, legally, with any man I choose. Not that there is much of a choice down here. I can also drive a Honda 50, I can get married, I can go into over 16's films... And I also have to pay a bigger fare on the buses, which is something I am not going to do. I actually had an extremely boring birthday. I got the boot runners as expected from Mum. I tried them on today when we were climbing. Mum's cousin's place is really massive. I must admit, it feels great to be in such a fantastic old house, but the place itself is getting on my easily irritated nerves. There's absolutely nothing to do down here except walk, which I have done a lot of, and eat and sleep. 
I think if I had to stay here for more than a week, I'd go out of my mind. I'm surviving on sweets and junk since I arrived. Mum keeps putting cabbage and bacon in front of me. And I keep saying I'm not hungry and then legging it down to the shop to fill myself. I am beginning to feel a bit silly because this is such a small town and all eyes gaze at you when you walk down the street. I'm nearly finished flowers in the attic. I've been reading most of the time to try and keep my mind off food. It is brilliant. I can't wait to read the next book. Oh, I wish I could tape for you the noise outside my window. Cows are answering back and forth in the loudest mooing I have ever heard. No wonder my writing looks so bad. The noise is affecting my sanity. I have to go now before my stomach fades away. I'll probably be home before this letter reaches you. Love, Anne. A year after Anne's letter to June, in what was to become a major setback to the feminist movement, Ireland's ban on abortion was further enshrined in our constitution with the passing of the Eighth Amendment in 1983. On Tuesday, the 31st of January 1984, a schoolgirl, just one year older than me, called Anne Lovett, made her way to a grotto near her home in Granard, County Longford. It was here, alone, beside the statue of the Virgin Mary, that Anne gave birth to a baby boy. Tragically, both Anne and her baby died shortly afterwards. Unlike the women who had been shunned by their families and communities and made their way to mother and baby homes, Anne's death could not be brushed under the carpet. The media, including the Gay Burn Show, covered the events at Granard. In the weeks that followed, they were inundated with letters as the population tried to make sense of the tragedy. Out of these letters, you will hear, comes the anguish of the untold stories of many women in Ireland. In some cases, they've never told to anyone before what they're telling you now this morning on the programme. Time and again, they make the point that being able to write it all down is a relief, a therapy. So we hope you'll bear with us this morning while we read to you just a fraction of the letters that have come in on this subject. We read them because our listeners wrote them to us and they want them read out so that something like this might never happen again. And your readers this morning are Kate Holman. In the aftermath of Anne's death, a Leitrim woman living in England, Mary Guckian, remembers picking up an Irish newspaper in a London library and reading about the young girl and the baby born beside the statue. Mary had grown up on a small family farm in the 1950s and trained as a typist, a skill that gave her more independence than most women. She began writing poetry in her spare time and soon after she turned 40, left a steady job in Dublin because she fancied seeing the literary cities of Oxford and London. She found work in a college and accommodation in a series of boarding houses. Shortly before Christmas 1986, Mary sends a letter to a group of friends back home in Leitrim. Oxford, 14th of December 1985. Hello Josie, Bridget and Paddy. I'm not sure of your address, so I will send it to Norwood Park. How is everybody? Well, as you can see, I'm now with the above address. Went through a patch of being down, but I'm up again. Sorry I moved in one way, but there was no space to type at the other house and this was the only reasonable sized room I found. It was filthy, and it is all men in the house, which really upset me when I moved in. 
I felt so uncomfortable. But I'm over that now. The first day, my car gave trouble and one of the men from upstairs came to my assistance. Anyway, he started pestering me, but he got the message after a few days and I don't see him now. Met him on the street on Saturday with a fierce-looking dame, so he probably met his match. He has a Dublin mother, looks like a teddy boy in his fifties, says he is forty though, so I don't know. I've now discovered the landlady is an alcoholic. Met her daughter on the stairs this evening and she told me not to get drink for her if she wants it. Still, this is what one gets for wanting to move around. And when I'm in good form, I enjoy it all. But when I first arrived here, I thought I'd have to go back home. I was so low. There's lots of concerts and lovely singing at the churches here, so it is fairly Christmassy. I've enjoyed the scene here. The senior tutor I work with is a real dote, so gentle and nearly afraid to ask me to take a letter. He lectures in Greek and Latin, and I see some lovely translations of those works around here sometimes. I would prefer to be reading them than typing, but no time for such frivolities. Oh, this is my own typewriter. Not great and sticking on me, so forgive the mess. Anyway, hope you have a pleasant Christmas and roads won't be bad for travelling. Lots of love to all and good wishes for 1986. Mary in 1987, I took the train from Cork to Dublin to start college life. I was studying a new course called Communications. College seemed like a foreign country compared to the convent school. And the freedom we had, including the freedom of thought, was brand new for most of us. I went to England to work for the summer of 1988. Returning home in September with no money, a shaved head and a positive pregnancy test. Cork, February 1990. Dear Susan, thank you for your letter. I am now sending you on a photograph of Peter as requested. As you can see, he's really gorgeous. His adoptive mother has said she will have a more recent photo of him shortly. One of the other social workers here has been visiting him over the last few months. She said that he is a very strong child. He has brown eyes and sallow skin and his hair is light brown at the moment. You will be glad to know that he is standing now and holding on to furniture. He is a very pleasant child. He sleeps all night and he takes to everybody. I hope this information will give you some idea of how he's getting on. You can be assured that he is absolutely loved and spoiled. I hope you yourself are keeping well and not finding your studies too strenuous. With very best wishes, yours sincerely, Mary O'Hare, Social Worker. I received that letter on my 20th birthday. The previous summer, I had made the difficult decision to put my baby up for adoption. And so he began his life with his new family and I returned to life at college. But it was only after the adoption papers had been signed that I realised the magnitude of what I had done. In the years that followed, my grief for my son coloured everything. Looking back now, I see that I was part of the last wave of women who gave their babies up for adoption. We were standing on a fault line of change. 
When I became pregnant as a single teenager, the myth of the ideal family structure still prevailed. But minds were slowly opening and change was coming. You know that as President of Ireland, I must be President for all the people. But more than that, I want to be President for all the people. Because I was elected by men and women of all parties and none, by many with great moral courage, who stepped out from the faded flags of the Civil War and voted for a new Ireland, and above all, by the women of Ireland. Manana Heron. On the 3rd of December 1990, Mary Robinson is inaugurated as the first female president of Ireland. At the ceremony, she's like a breath of fresh air, dressed in purple among a sea of dark suits. The women of Ireland, Manana Heron, who instead of rocking the cradle, rocked the system. <laughs> Over the Christmas of 92, a mother and daughter in Dublin have an argument about religion. The daughter, Jennifer, like many of my generation, is breaking free of religion, while it is still central to her mother's life. After the holidays, Jennifer returns to her job in London and a flurry of letters are exchanged. One of these letters, written by Anne to her daughter, is testament to their determination to move on, despite their differences. Fox Rock, County Dublin, Monday night, 18th of January, 1992. My dear Jen, I was delighted to see your letter addressed to me when I came in on Monday afternoon. It was a beautiful January day and all my golfing friends were out enjoying themselves. I had been feeling rather vulnerable since I wrote that letter to you, wondering how you would react not wanting to hurt you and hoping I hadn't done the wrong thing by writing it. I think it was the most painful letter I have ever written. But it paid dividends. You reacted as I hoped you would, honestly and immediately. You are terrific. I really needed to read your letter. I now feel confident that I can always confide in you and this is so important. Why are we Irish so afraid to say how we really feel? You and I will change all that. I don't want you to feel guilty at the prospect of me being lonely. Every mother must face the reality of children leaving the nest. It's only natural. In fact, when you left that time with Deirdre to work in the Bank of London, I said to myself, don't let Jen see that you're about to crack up. Whatever you do, keep cheerful. I waved a breezy goodbye and closed the door at number six, glad that someone else was driving you to the airport. I'm only delighted to see you living your life as you do, and I'm proud of your achievements and rejoice when you rejoice. To get back to the religion bit, I get the impression that you think my faith is strong, while I really don't know whether it is or not. I know that sharing a religious experience and praying together as a family is a good thing. I'm not saying it's easy. It's much easier to stay in bed on a Sunday morning than to get up and struggle up to Mass. What makes me sad is the thought of my family turning into a generation where religion has no importance at all. 
I even wish sometimes that I had no faith at all myself. Then it wouldn't matter what happened. But then, whoever said life was neat and tidy? After all our words, I feel that we have reached new depths of understanding, which is wonderful. Something good has come out of it all. Something unique and to be treasured. Fondest love, Mum. The affection and respect between women of different generations is again evident when 88-year-old Nell in West Dublin, who is nearing the end of her life, asks a friend to help her to write a short letter to her niece, Sandra. Nell's husband had died decades earlier and Nell has no children of her own. Tala, 5th of February, 1993. Sandra. I'm asking Lena to write this letter for me, as I'm a bit shaky on the hands. It's about the cats. As you know, Sandra, I love the old cats. They've kept me going all these years looking after them. I don't know what you're going to do with the house, Sandra, and I don't mind. It's yours to do what you want. If you should stay and live in it, I hope you'll be as happy as I was all these years. But... I would like to think that if you do stay on, you will promise me that you will keep the cats and look after them till their time comes. Lena will help you out and tell you what to do. They're no trouble. All they want is a bit to eat and a place to sleep. I have them a long time and I would hate anything to happen to them. Now, Sandra, you probably don't like animals like I do, but you don't have to like them. Just look after them for me, please. I hope you do live in the old house. You'll be very happy there, I know, like I was. It's very peaceful. I love the old place. That's all, Sandra. God bless you. Love from Nell. Sandra and her family did move into the old place after Nell's death in 96, and they've been very happy there. Recently, they adopted a new kitten, from the local cat rescue in keeping with Nell's tradition. You're listening to Letters from Midwinter on Documentary on News Talk. This next little letter is also an ask. A 14-year-old girl, excited about her first disco, writes to her older sister, who's away working on Long Island on a J-1 visa. Dundrum, 23rd of June, 1993. Dear Neve, can I please, 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 please buy your black velvet dress for a disco on Friday? Just ring me and say yes or no and I'll pay for the phone call. If you do not get this letter by Friday at 8pm, it doesn't matter. Okay. Thank you. Your dearest sister, Circa XX. The letter didn't arrive in time, and needless to say, the dress was borrowed anyway. But Circa kept the letter as a reminder of a time in their relationship when her sister looked up to her and wanted to be like her. The number of women not having children has been steadily increasing in my lifetime. For some women, this is very much a choice, but not always. For Catherine, The road to motherhood had been long and difficult. 
In 2008, when she was in her early 40s, she wrote a letter to one of her closest friends who was coming to terms with childlessness. Sometimes things are hard to say and a letter can provide a way to navigate the delicate boundaries of our most valued relationships. Blackrock, 23rd of March, 2008. Alva, I'm sending you an old-fashioned letter because I know it's hit or miss whether you get the internet going when you're in Donegal and that's half the point of escaping Dublin anyway. Still feels a bit cold for March, but it's been dry enough here this week. If it's the same there, at least you'll be able to open the windows and give the place a good airing. After our coffee on Monday, I couldn't stop thinking of what you told me about that Mother's Day lunch with your family. I cannot believe that the waitress brought out a glass of champagne for every woman at the table except just you and Nessa. To leave the two of you sitting there with just a miserable glass of water... You'd think in this day and age people would realise how hurtful it is to be dividing women into mother and not mother like that. Fair play to you for complaining though. I have to say that story brought back some upsetting memories for me. When I was going through those awful eight years of miscarriages I could never find the words to speak about how it felt. Motherhood is like a club that women of a certain age are expected to join. If you don't You have to live with the feeling of being left out, the questions and nosiness and the little bit of useless advice that everyone has to offer. I know I eventually joined the motherhood club myself, but I'll never forget how hard those years were. And I am sorry you're going through the same thing now. I'm so glad you're not keeping your pain a secret the way I used to. And I admire how you are working hard to chart another path through life. I see how some days you generously give the kids around you, including my two, your time and energy. But also, carefully, hold a little back for yourself. Anyway, make the most of the break. Swim in the lake, take some long walks and enjoy a glass of wine by the stove in the evenings. I poured one myself when I started this letter, as you may have guessed. Love, Catherine. In the 21st century, the idea that women should be mothers is still deeply entrenched. And yet, the life of the child takes priority over that of the mother. 2012 was the year that we learned the name Savita Halapanavar. That same year, a young woman with a disability gives birth to a baby girl. Sarah Fitzgerald is a university-educated woman and writer. But her confidence as a mother was deeply undermined by the medical and social services. After the first year of her daughter's life, Sarah decided it was time to speak out about her experiences in an open letter on her blog. The public health nurse started visiting when I was 12 weeks pregnant, asking questions that I didn't know the answer to. How are you going to feed the baby? Change it? Carry it? We've never come across this sort of situation, I was told countless times. What do they mean, this sort of situation? I spent months trying to illustrate how, if I got help with basic tasks such as bottle making, washing and cooking, being alone with a baby would not be a big deal. Later, I heard how everybody was apprehensive, watching with bated breath, expecting me to fail. I remember when Alison was born... 
I held her in my arms and I was blown away by her huge blue eyes, her physical strength and her flawless skin. Immediately the lactation consultant showed me how to breastfeed. I hadn't really considered breastfeeding but Alison took to it easily and as I watched her help herself it occurred to me that if I could do it then I would always be useful even if I couldn't do anything else for her. So I began motherhood, feeling like an imposter, dreading the constant visits from the nurse. Was it any wonder that with all the external criticism, a mean voice moved into my own headspace when I was feeling low? A voice that told me that I was going to drop Alison whenever I picked her up, that Alison was not safe in my care, that she would resent me as she got older because I wasn't a normal mum. On Alison's first birthday, I felt such a huge relief. Relief that I hadn't caused her any serious harm or injury. Relief that she was home with all of us. But I also felt anger. Angry that I had lost so much enjoyment with her because I was constantly worried what others thought of me and my parenting skills. That someone would threaten to take my little girl away from me. I had stayed silent plastering on a smile, but I can say now that that horrible part of my life is over and that it is time to write and talk about it. Sometimes a letter can be a powerful way to go public on an issue. Lyra McKee was a young journalist and blogger from Belfast who tragically was killed in rioting in Derry in 2019. Five years before her death, 24-year-old Lyra wrote and published a letter to her teenage self, In this extract, Lyra describes coming out as gay to her mother. Life is so hard right now. Every day you wake up wondering who else will find out your secret and hate you. It won't always be like this. It's going to get better. Three months before your 21st birthday, you will tell mum this secret. You will be sobbing and shaking and she will be frightened because she doesn't know what's wrong. Christmas will be just a couple of weeks away. You have to tell her because you've met someone you like and you can't live with the guilt anymore. You can't get the words out, so she says it. Are you gay? And you will say, Yes, Mummy, I'm so sorry. And instead of getting mad, she will reply, Well, thank God you're not pregnant. You will crawl into her lap, sobbing, as she holds you and tells you that you are her little girl and how could you ever think that anything would make her love you any less? You will feel like a prisoner who has been given their freedom. You will remember all the times you pleaded with God to help you because you were so afraid and you will feel so foolish because you had nothing to worry about. Lyra's letter went viral following her death. It resonated It reminded us that when society does not value who we are, what we really need is one person in our corner who accepts us. A little known fact is that Lyra shared her name with a small constellation of stars, visible low in the northern sky during the winter months. In December 2011, a day when there was a light dusting of snow on everything, I had a reunion with the son I placed for adoption. Our meeting was wonderful. And on that day, 
I began to heal. Five years after that reunion, I wrote him this letter on Christmas Eve. My dear son, I am so thrilled to be able to wish you a happy Christmas. It's impossible to express how much joy that brings me. On Christmas Eve every year, you were always in my thoughts. I love this day. I always have. And I used to look up at the night sky every year to reassure myself that somewhere under the vastness was a little boy that might be looking up for Santa. I tried to imagine what you might look like. I wondered if you thought about me. But mostly, I had a sense that you were experiencing the excitement, the hope and the utter delight I always felt on this night as a child. I felt connected to you in a way that's hard to explain. You have turned out to be a fine person. The parents who raised you did it so well. You're hardworking, kind, a people person. You may not know it, but the last day I spent with you as a baby was the last time I felt true peace until we met again. On that day in 1989, the social worker had the decency to leave us alone in a little waiting room. I lay you on my chest and you burrowed in deep and slept quietly. I gazed at you and marvelled at you and after a while I dozed too. We had one hour before the door opened and the spell was broken. I've learned a lot since our reunion. I've begun to understand that adoption is forever. You have your lovely adopted family now and I get that. I still hope though that our profound connection will keep us close in some way and that I can share in your life and you in mine a little. Tonight, when the children I have raised are asleep and the house is quiet, I will walk outside and look up at the winter sky. I will think of you, the beautiful baby I brought into the world, the little boy I never met, and the man I am hoping to know, and I will wish you happiness this Christmas and every Christmas. Your loving mother, Susan. Writing that letter and knowing it would be read was a moment of resolution in my personal story. In the wider narrative, it also feels like Irish women are coming out of the shadows. Many of the barriers to our autonomy have been dismantled, including the Eighth Amendment. But dark places still exist and women are still marginalised and face discrimination on this island. As a society, we must find a way to hear the voices of women who don't have a platform from which to speak. Just weeks before this documentary is completed, one last letter arrives. It's written by a 19-year-old girl living in a direct provision centre. It's accompanied by a note from the girl's mother, who describes her daughter as intelligent and talented, but lacking confidence. She says she's worried about her daughter, who often spends all night sitting on the floor in a small gap between the wardrobe and the wall, writing letters to her best friend in Africa. 
6th December 2020. Dear Caitlin, I've been sitting in my safe corner, which is on my side of the room because my brother's side is messy, for the last hour and a half. It's 1.44 a.m. and my mind is busy so I can't sleep. My heart feels heavy. I'm so tired of the unknown and I'm so scared of it too. Being in limbo gives you a lot of time to analyze and overthink. I'm afraid that my life is just going to get wasted away, like those people I've always said I'd never want to become. Currently, I'm just alive, but not living a life. I wake up late in the day because I only get to sleep around the time my brother goes to school. I don't eat that often. I write to you or to myself. I draw or paint. I listen to music because that always helps. Basically, that's my life. You keep encouraging me to make friends. And believe me, I've tried and I want to. But due to circumstances, I've been unable to keep a single friend so far. As soon as people find out I'm in direct provision, they stop texting and eventually just become a very tiny memory. Does me being in direct provision change the type of person I am? I don't like going out anymore because I'm often looked at weirdly. It's not everyone, but it's easier to avoid those situations altogether. I don't like being treated like I don't understand anything. I know that I'm not super intelligent, but I also know that I'm not dumb. I know you would probably just tell me to hang in there and be positive, but for how long? I always think about last year and all the crazy memories we made at university. I miss it. I miss all of it. Imagine, I'd be finished my second year this year, almost done studying and ready to start with the rest of our amazing plans. I hope next time I'm writing to you, I'm better. But for now, I'm grateful to have a true friend like you who always sees the best in me. Riona. Letters from Midwinter was produced, written and narrated by Susan Dennehy. The researcher and script editor was Joanna Marsden. The programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. Additional support was provided by Unpust.